Well, uh, good morning, everybody. It's great to see you, and uh, yes, youth, bless you as you go out with Becca and a little crowd this morning. So the rest of them, I think, are at Rush. But uh, it's uh, I'm 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 pleased you're here. I'm glad you're here. Um, I, just before I, we jump into Mark, I just wanted to say a couple of things. I was at Rush yesterday, and it was just such a joy to see so many youth gathering. And uh, Pastor Phil was preaching, and then. Uh, and then Josh and uh, Luke and Zoe and a couple of other people from 33 uh, were playing in the, in the foyer there. Jameson as well was making a guest appearance. He'd come from Vancouver. And uh, I got to say, I was so proud to see how our young adults and our youth are developing and growing in ministry. We are in a fantastic church that invests a lot of time and energy into our youth and young adults. So please continue to pray for them over the next uh, over the next day, at least, and then uh, that would be that would be wonderful. And I just want to echo what Brad said about the coldest night yesterday. Um, so it was a uh, good job there, Wendy and Co. and everybody who got involved. We're uh, we're delighted about that. Today is uh, happens to me every year or so, uh, and. Um, I go into the into the room to pray at 9 a.m., which, by the way, you are welcome to join us in, uh, in prayer. Uh, more on that later. But um, I have my sermon all sorted and ready to go, and, and I preached it actually yesterday at, at 33. And, um, and then as I'm praying, I'm just feeling and sensing that God wants me to go in a slightly different direction. And so uh, I want to apologize ahead of time that the scriptures that appear on the screen may be a little disjointed. They may not be exactly the same version. Justin is going to do the best he can to keep up with me. Um, but I, I really do want to share something from a pastor's heart, a father's heart, um, what I believe God has placed uh, on my um, on my spirit to share uh, a really important message, I believe, for for us as, as a church. Before I do that, I do want to share this story. I had the joy a few years ago of, of traveling to India, to the two child of mine homes uh, to see the work there. I went with Phil and it was, it was a great time. For whatever reason, I can't actually remember why. We, normally you'd get a train from New Delhi up to, uh, to the first home, uh, but for whatever reason, I can't remember Brad, but the train wasn't available or something and I think or either that was just... Brad playing a cunning trick on us. We we ended up spending is it like ten hours in the back of a tiny little car going on these kind of death-defying roads up into the mountains, and uh, and then we stayed a few a uh, few nights at that first home, and then we travelled up to Banali to the next one again by road, which I seem to remember is the same amount of time again in the car. Um, so once we'd done our visit, I was very grateful that we'd actually managed. And I think Brad actually uh, sorted this out for us for a flight from Manali down to New Delhi. And I was very, very grateful that we didn't have to spend all the time in the back of the car. So we got onto this flight. I don't remember what um, airline it was, but uh, we were sat there. Phil and I were, were in different seats, different parts of the plane. And I just got my book out. And it's like an hour and a half, maybe, I seem to remember this flight. And as we're taxiing off, you know that really slow process as you're backing up and heading off? I was just sat there and the, the air stewardess had already done their, their thing. Oh, that's not politically correct anymore, is it? Cabin attendant. I apologize. The cabin attendant had done that thing that we're all so 
we just ignore, don't we? To be honest, you know, if you've been on a plane enough times, it's not like you're sat there taking notes, is it? You just kind of go, yeah, yeah, seatbelt, whatever, and you've, you've heard it all before. But as we're taxiing off, they're already sat now in their little chairs at the front. The, the oxygen mask drops out right in front of my face, which is a bit of a surprise, because immediately you're like, well, we haven't even taken off. Should I be strapping this thing on? And, and I look around the rest of the cabin and no one else's oxygen mask has dropped, just mine. So then I'm thinking, well, maybe this is just the blessing of God and just wants to save me and no one else. And that's, that's all right. But then I figured, no, actually, there's clearly a problem because there's just no sign that there's any issues at all. So I was in the aisle seat and I, so I pressed my, my button to get the cabin attendant, which of course didn't work. So I'm thinking, okay, this is, not, this is not filling me with a lot of confidence. I've been on some ropey airlines in my time, and this was starting to get up there. So I lean into the aisleway, and I wave at the cabin attendant, and she waves back. I'm not even lying. She waves, she waves back. I'm like, no, this is not... What should be happening? And eventually, she did actually come over and, and, I, you know, and I showed her and she was like, oh, she said something I didn't really understand. And, and she shoved it back in and hit it with her fist to try and keep it, keep it in. And, and, and of course, it wouldn't stay in and it just kept on falling out. This is why we're taxiing off. Now the rest of the passengers are starting to look. And I thought, I'm just destined to spend the rest of this flight with this in my face. But she had other plans. She went to the front of the, of the plane, and after a few minutes, she came back, and, and she returned with some duct tape. She duct taped the oxygen mask back into place. Seemed very satisfied with the work that she'd done, and kind of acknowledged me, and then went and sat down. I'm thinking, okay, so now, if something is to happen in midair, I'm going to have to be like... Frantically picking at this duct tape before I pass out. It was just a bizarre situation. And one that I have... And Phil was quite happy, obviously, in first class. No, he wasn't in first class. But I don't think there was such a thing. But it's interesting. There's a clear issue. She's tried to bang that thing back into place. Didn't work. So then she resorts to the universal fixing tool, duct tape. She probably had some WD-40 back there as well. She duct tapes. She didn't fix it. She duct tapes it. And that is a really good picture, I think, of many of our culture's lives. Maybe your life this morning. That there is a brokenness, but you've done a really not great job, but a sufficient job of duct taping it away. So on first glance, there's not actually any issues at all. But on a close inspection, or if you allow somebody closer and into your world to talk and share, that actually it can be picked away at pretty easily. And the issue gets exposed. It says in Revelation 3, and I mentioned this scripture a little while back, that we, um, that we tend as Christians to forget our first love. If I was going to give this title, a title to this morning's sermon, and we are going to be looking at, uh, at the Gospel of Mark, if I was going to give a title, a title would be this, The, the Drift. 
I think that there are clear examples in our Christian church where there, there's a drift that happens. Um, part of my world, part of my life, is to sit down with people and to talk. And I shared this with the leadership this week, the South leadership team. And I said, part of my world is sitting down with good people, who I, many of whom I, I've known a, a long time now, at least for six years or maybe a little shorter. And I, and I love them dearly. And yet there's duct taping going on. There's, there's, there's clear issues and, and I could share some examples, I'm not, but I could share some examples of real life challenges that people have had in our community that have caused this drift, that now they're in a place where they would still call themselves Christians and yet they've drifted away from their first love and then, then issues start happening, fractures start happening through their life in their marriages, in their families, in their kids and suddenly they're, they're finding situations and challenges with their family that when the little ones were small they could duct tape over really well but now children especially do a wonderful job of exposing fractures. In marriages and in and, and in spirituality and church life, um, and as a pastor, I, I I'm faced with this, and I shared this with the South leadership team, and I feel helpless because there's nothing actually I can do. The human part of me wants to say, "Well, you're you're too late." In some ways, you're, you're 17, 18, 19, 22 year old kid is it's too late. You're now there in the hands of God. All you can do is is pray. But this morning's passage in Mark chapter 6 is a, is a great example of a drift. And it says in Colossians that, we, uh, that, we, that the scriptures and, and the Psalms and different aspects of our Christian life and, and being around one another, there's an admonishment, there's a, there's a warning. If somebody is running into danger, then we, we try and stop them. And the Bible is filled with, with warnings and, and, and examples of what could happen. And, and Colossians says to admonish one another. And so in many ways, what I'm going to do this morning is a little bit of an admonishment. But I also want to encourage you as we go along that, that, that God is very much part of the story. So I'm going to read a chunk of scripture, Mark chapter 6, verse 14. And I'm not sure whether any of you have heard a sermon on this. I don't think I have. Because it's not a particularly encouraging passage. Mark chapter 6 and verse... Actually, I'll start at verse 12. So they, that's the disciples, went out and proclaimed that people should repent. By the way, this is why I encourage you to bring your Bibles with you because the screens don't always work. So I hope you have your Bibles. Verse 12 of Mark chapter 6. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. That's a good thing that's happening. And then verse 14. King Herod heard of this, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet like the one of prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I'm beheaded, has raised. So Herod 
and, and Mark calls him King Herod. He's not actually a king. So some commentators actually say there's a little bit of sarcasm put in there, and I'll come to that in a second. But Herod heard this, and that Jesus' name had become known. And first of all, Christians, let it be our aim that we make Jesus' name known in our culture and our community. Let's make that our aim. They're not the South name, not your name, but Jesus' name. So Jesus' name is being known, and some people are saying, well, it's John the Baptist, or, uh, or, or it's one of the prophets. But Herod, we're told, he said, well, hang on, John, whom I'm beheaded, has he been raised from the dead? Verse 17, for it was Herod who sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man. And he kept him safe. When he heard him, he, had, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. So, who is this Herod character? Herod's dad was great, the, the great king Herod. The, he had a large amount of kingdom. These sons that he had that were very uh, helpfully called Herod. Herod, 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 Herod. Which I think is actually a really great idea because especially when you get above two children, you start forgetting all your kids' names and you go through all their names and then the dog's names, the cat's names, the fish name, and then their name and they get very offended. That happens in our household with having four children. So if we just called them all Glenn, that would make it so much more simple. And that's what Herod did, apart from he had a daughter. So it's Herod, 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 Doris. I'm not joking. Doris. I'm like, that's brilliant. But he, he thinks, I'm going to call them all Herod and then have a Doris. So there's Doris, which is lovely. So, so what's happening in this situation is this, is that one of Herod's sons, king, the big King Herod, uh, had a, a son called Philip as well. So you've got Herod in the scripture we're reading here, Herod Antipas, and we've got his brother Philip. Now Philip married a lady called Herodias. You see the connection now, Herod, Herodias, keep up with me, it gets more complicated, I promise you. So now you've got King Herod Antipas, you've got his brother Philip, and you've got this lady called Herodias, who is the daughter of another Herod. In other words, Philip has married his niece. You with me? Okay. Now, incest is clearly taught against in the Old Testament and the New Testament. That is wrong, but it gets even more complicated. This is like a really, really bad daytime soap opera. You've got Philip marrying his niece, and then you've got another brother, this Herod that we've just read about, Herod Antipas, falls in love with Herodias, steals her history tells us, and marries her. Okay, so let's just wrap our mind around what's going on in Herod Antipas's life right now. He's married his niece, who is also his sister-in-law, while she's still married to Philip. This is messed up, would you not agree? If you think your family's messed up, welcome to Herod's world. Now John, being the type of character he was, we know that he only had one message, John. His message was repent. 
I'm going to guess with some certainty that in any conversation that John had with Herod, and the scripture certainly suggests that they had good contact because it says, for Herod feared John, in verse 20, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. So what was it he was hearing? Well, first of all, I think that John probably suggested that everybody needs to get name tags because it's all very, very complicated. And then I would also think he was going to say, you know what? You need to repent. What you're doing is wrong. What you're doing is horrendously wrong. It is not only unlawful, as the scripture says, but it's sinful. And he would have preached this to Herod. And yet Herod, and this is what fascinates me, and the scripture says it, wanted to protect him because he was righteous and holy and enjoyed listening to him. There's something inside Herod that knows that John is onto something. There's something inside Herod that knows that John is speaking truth. He was fascinated by him. Do you remember a few weeks ago when I talked about soil and how some soil is shallow and the word of God goes into it, but it, it, gets, it, it just doesn't have any depth. It doesn't grow. That's Herod. He's not willing to deal with it. I'm sure he's filled with all sorts of excuses as to why he can't. So he's hearing the word of God, he's ignoring the word of God, he's continuing to live in sin. God graciously is giving him John to remind him, to tell him, to repent. So the, the story carries on, verse 21. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. Let's stop there. Here's what this scripture is telling us is basically, this is a men-only orgy. A drunken orgy is what commentators would tell us. So this king, and he's not a king, because actually Caesar took all the kingdom away from great King Herod, and so the boys who actually only had small amounts of area, it wasn't a kingdom, but he was surrounded like he was thinking he was a king, with all these men, his military commanders, all the people that he wanted to impress. Verse 22, For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. The level of sin that is happening in this party is crazy. I don't even want to try and figure out who Herodias' daughter is to Herod. But the fact that this young girl comes in and dances amongst all these men, I'm sure you can fill in the gaps as to what actually was happening. And they were pleased. So much so, the king said to the girl, verse 22, Ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and asked and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, Because Herodias wants to get rid of John, because John is just plaguing their life. Repent, repent, this is wrong, this is bad. So Herodias is a piece of work. She said, what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Verse 26 is perhaps one of the most significant verses in this whole passage. The king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. Pride. Pride. 
He was sorry because he respected John. He knew John was speaking truth. He was, uh, he was uh, uh, puzzled and, and intrigued by him. He didn't want to kill him. It's like God still giving him this chance. This conscience is inside of him. This is not right. This is wrong. But pride pushes him through. Verse 27, and immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. And he went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. And when his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body, laid it in a tomb. My goodness, what a story. What do we glean from that? Where do we, where do we go from from the beginning when we're talking about covering up sin? Where, where do we go with this story? What application does this story have for us in our lives? Well, I think it surrounds a very simple and yet provoking question. And it's an easy one to answer. You see, King Herod, in summary, is ignoring the Word of God. He is sleeping and married to his niece and sister-in-law. He's taking part in some flirtatious relationship with his sister-in-law and niece's daughter. So I'm guessing that's his second niece. He has orgies. He's drunk. He's full of pride. And now he's committing murder. That's not your average night out. Do you think it started that way? That's the question. Do you think he started there? Because I'm going to show you some scriptures and and we're just going to move pretty quickly through them. But I want to show you that there is no, please listen, there is no such thing as a safe sin. There's no such thing as that doesn't count list. Because human nature is such that that which you think is okay today is is likely to develop into something that ultimately will destroy you eventually. It says in Romans 1 that that God turned them over for a present day wrath as well as an eternal wrath. And so some commentators would say that that present day wrath, and C.S. Lewis does some writing on this especially, and, and Tim Keller, they talk about how this present day wrath is actually being lived out now by, by many people. In other words, they're living in some kind of hell now. Because the sin that they see is nothing that they're desperately trying to duct tape and cover up or put some sort of face on. Well, ultimately, the trajectory of it isn't that it gets better, it gets worse. And I'm going to guess that King Herod would not have considered this as even a possibility a few years back. Committing murder and all the other horrendous things. He drifted there. He drifted there. Think about the prodigal son. He, he has his father. He has this relationship with the father in, in the prodigal son. And yet we, we read the story. He eventually ends up in a pig pen. He doesn't go from his father to the pig pen. He drifts there. It's step by step. And I want to suggest to you that, that we as Christians need to be really, really careful. We do not drift into godliness. We actually work into godliness. We don't work for 
our salvation, but there is work, there is a guarding. That's why it says in Colossians that we're to warn and admonish one another. That Paul says, consider yourself dead to sin, and then at the same time he'll say, work out your salvation in fear and trembling. So you are righteous, you are righteous in Christ, that when you believe in Jesus Christ and your sin dies with him, he gives us that robe of righteousness. Remember that, that image I did a few months ago, was, I think it was Brad, that he, and, and who else was it? Was it Jared? There was the, there was the right, robe of righteousness. We're covered with righteousness. But there's this sin element that stays in our life that if we're not careful, will drift more and more and more into destruction. You go right back into Genesis. Actually, you know what? Let's just camp out with Lot for a second. Lot is a really intriguing character. Lot had a relationship with Abraham, and you can read about it in Genesis 13 through to Genesis 19. And, and Lot was traveled everywhere with Abraham. Until one day, the scripture says, he looked out to the valley of Jordan and saw that the land was good and said to Abraham, I want to go out by myself. It was the wrong thing for Lot to do, but Abraham let him go. He started his drift. And if you plot the journey of Lot, it's very interesting. He, we know he ends up in Sodom because Sodom and Gomorrah is that story we know so well. But he doesn't go straight there. He drifts there. He camps closer and closer and closer to Sodom. Actually, halfway through his journey, God kind of reaches out and rescues Abraham rescues him because he's kidnapped. And Abraham rescues him back, but Lot goes off by himself again. He ignores, like Herod, ignores the word of God and presses on, thinking, no, I'm going to be fine. Eventually, the scripture tells us in Genesis 19, verse 1, when the angels turn up at Sodom and Gomorrah to rescue Lot. Lot, it says, and you can read it later, Lot say, it says that Lot is uh, sat at the gate. That's really significant. Because he started with Abraham, he's camped closer and closer and closer to Sodom, he's lived in Sodom, and now the only people who sit at the gates are the leaders of the city. Now he's a leader. He's a leader of what really is still called the most atrocious and sinful, it's used as a metaphor, Sodom and Gomorrah. It's horrendous. He's a leader. He's given his... Call. He's given his chance by God through Abraham. So you have Herod who drifts and finds himself in the situation. You've got the prodigal son who drifts and finds himself in the pig pen. Now you've got Lot who drifts and finds himself in Sodom and Gomorrah. You do not drift towards godliness. You drift towards destruction. Take Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, you can read the story and there's a drift till eventually they find themselves hiding behind trees because they're so ashamed of the sin that they have and then we have this beautiful picture of God the Father walking through the garden and you can read it in Genesis chapter 3 it says this God says he calls out where are you I've always been intrigued by any time that God asks man questions. Have you ever thought about that? Because if God is omniscient and omnipresent, then he knows everything beginning to end. So why is he asking any questions? Because he knows the answer. 
And I think you'll find, if you look at Scripture, that the times that God asks specific questions, the question is not so much about God finding out the information, it's to highlight the information to us. Adam and Eve, where are you? What are you doing? What have you done? And he would have every right Because of the sin and the shame and the brokenness and the decision that Adam and Eve had made. Because of the sin and the brokenness and the poor decisions that Lot had made, that Herod had made, that the prodigal son in that parable had made. He would have had every reason to separate himself and say, no, we're, we're done. And yet he walks through the garden of our lives and he says, where are you? Where are you? I think about David. David laid out on the top of his beautiful palace. He has everything that the world could have to offer. That God has blessed him so much. He is a warrior king. His wives, he has money, he has his palace, he has a kingdom, he's popular, he has good looks, the scripture tells us. He's laid on the roof of his palace and he looks across and he sees Bathsheba. David drifted to that point. And this, without going into depth of that story, that that sin that ensued literally cost David, dramatically cost him kingdom and, and children, and it was dreadful. But you know what God gave to David? He gave David Nathan. And you can read the result in Psalm 51 where David is crying out, Create in me a clean heart. This is it's his psalm of repentance that I never would have thought that I would have landed here, but here I am. See, Herod followed through. He ignored constantly this beautiful gift that God has given us. It's the whisper of, where are you? Where are you? There's no such thing as safe sin. You do not drift into godliness. So the question that that is on my mind as I read these stories and I consider the drift and I consider our church here and at Willow Park and across the city and, and Christendom as a whole, what I can look at and I see is there's a drift. There's a duct taping. There's a hiding. There's a, I think I can handle this. I'm sure that Herod would have been confident that he knew what he was doing. I can handle it. Glenn, I I can handle watching that program. Glenn, I can handle listening to that music. I can handle having that flirtatious relationship with the person at work. I can handle going on late night TV. I can handle all these things. I know what I'm doing. I can handle all the the addictive social media that I do. I can handle it. I know what I'm doing. And and it's like God is, is, is yelling at us through this beautiful thing called our conscience and the Holy Spirit. No, no, you can't. You can't handle it. Where are you? I'm so grateful that, that we as Christians and those of you who are not there that, that hopefully you can resonate with some of what I'm sharing this morning that sin, that issues, that challenges don't seem to reduce they just they get bigger that I'm so grateful that through the cross there's this echo through all of the Bible because that where are you in the Genesis really echoes through every page of scripture that, that presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ is the where are you with this? 
because we can't handle it. So what do we do? See, we all have this inner voice, this conscience. You feed consciousness, feed your conscience, that's better. If you feed your conscience good things, then it gets more and more sensitive to the bad things, right? The more you feed your conscience with the gospel, with community, with prayer, with good relationships, with Bible reading, meditation, community group, you press into the word of God. The more you feed the Holy Spirit, that inner whisper with all those good things, the more and more sensitive it gets. It gets more and more sensitive to those things that don't belong. So things that you didn't struggle with a few years ago, I'm hoping you struggle with now because that is actually a sign of sanctification, that ongoing process of becoming more like, like Jesus. You look at Paul. Paul starts his apostolic career, if you like, saying, I'm the least of all the apostles. Near the end of his life, he says, I am the chief of sinners. He has gone from being the least of an apostle to the chief of sinners. Why is that? Because he sees himself more and more clearly the more time he spends praying and in the word of God. And God graciously, consistently forgives and changes and transforms and brings life of Jesus into his life where he becomes more and more humble and more and more Christ-like. And near the end of his life in Philippians, he says this, that I might know Jesus and the power of his resurrection. I, like the older he gets, the more he realizes he, more, he needs Jesus. Do you see how there's a difference in journey? I can handle it, I know what I'm doing, and you end up in a pig pen. Or I can't handle it. I don't know what I'm doing. I hear the call of the where are you. Father, forgive me. And you get closer and closer and more and more like Jesus. And those sins and issues get you closer and closer to being what we were originally created for in in Genesis, which is perfection. So we feed our consciousness good things. We become more sensitive the opposite is also true, so please, please hear me. The more you ignore, the more you feed your consciousness bad things, the more excuses you make, the more things you miss, the more reasons that you give, the more priorities that you make over and above the things that are truly right and good. So I'm too busy, or I can't because, or, well, you don't understand, Glenn, or if it wasn't for her, or if it wasn't for him, or I'm too busy at work, I'm, I'm, I'm earning money so my kids can have a good life, or all these, all these things. If, if that becomes our priority, then our consciousness, you'll find, slowly d- diminishes. The Bible says that, that this Holy Spirit will actually withdraw because he's grieved, so when I sit down with my friends and I listen to their challenges, my heart breaks because I'm thinking there's been a grievance. There's been a drift. There's been a feeding of other things, not good things. And by God's grace, many of those people get to a place of sheer desperation that they have kind of this inspirational dissatisfaction where they're inspired to seek out the pastor or they'll come to church and that activity doesn't actually 
work because there's nothing I can do. It's everything that he can do. So, therefore, and I hope this has made some sense, we're left in a place where, on a personal level, we need to feed the good, we need to do the right things so that we drift, we don't drift, but we purposefully move towards godliness. That, by the way, that as we become more godly, we become far more effective transformation instruments. So we go into our families and our communities and into our coffee shops and workplaces and we actually now have this essence of Christ on us where people will actually want to know what it is and you will want to tell them and and that's how transformation happens in our community. What won't happen is people who are drifting towards sin who go to church every now and again out of sheer guilt sometimes going into their community and making excuses as to why They're not prioritizing Christ. That doesn't transform anything. So where does this all start? Where does it leave us? One of the things that I've been very convicted about over the last few weeks is that when Christ cleared out the temple, he declared that his church was to be a house of prayer, not a den of robbers. Do you remember that story? What's really interesting about it is that the things that were happening in the temple, and I preached on this about a year ago, those things weren't bad things. They were just in the wrong place. So he clears the temple out because the temple is where the power and the presence of God was, and it should be a house of prayer. And so I looked at my own life, And I've looked over the last couple of years and I've said there's just been this constant journey of Jesus kicking over tables and giving me a whipping. (laughs) Like that does not belong, Glenn. Neither does that. Neither does that. And you know what? He brings, I've used this term before. I might write a book one day because I think it's a good book title. Laura, don't steal this. Called, he brings this divine ruin. Like... I'm just going to ruin the stuff that you think is most important so that you can actually see what is the most important. And he will take away so that he can give. The house of prayer. So personally, I am a temple, a house of God. My life should be consumed and prioritized by prayer. This church needs to be consumed and prioritized by prayer. So here's the beautiful thing, that if you have drifted... If you know that you have safe sins, of which that is no such thing, it's an oxymoron, that is not true. There is sin in your life, you will not drift towards godliness, that needs to be dealt with. And as a church, we want to help you do that, that's why we have set free, but ultimately it's about confession and prayer. Listening to the voice of the Spirit, and He will speak, because it's that, where are you? And the response, I'm here And I need your help. I can't do this. I know that there are people in this room who are there. That have worked hard duct taping up. But it's just not getting you anywhere. So on a personal level, my prayer as the pastor of this campus is that we as a church would become very sensitive to the word and the 
voice of the Spirit, so that we would constantly seek him out in prayer, confessing those things that separate us from him, so that we would then become transformational in our community. It starts in us. And then all the activities that we do get amped up and activated because now you've got Holy Spirit-charged people doing them rather than dull, I say that kindly, dulled, that's better, dulled drifters who believe in Jesus putting their weight behind activities with some level of energy. See, it starts with us. It starts with me. So when Brad stands up and he says previously to, about giving, you're like, bring it on. And that bag better be big. So I put my cash in too. Because now the money is not the issue. The issue is making much of Jesus because you've listened to the voice of Christ who's brought you closer and closer to him. So that when we stand and say, hey, it's Willow One Prayer, hashtag W1P. Willow on prayer tomorrow night at seven, you're like, I'm there. I'm there. Because if there's like-minded people who want to pray, I'm there. And you know what? Can I just say, it is a very non-scary environment. You are not going to be made to pray. It's not like we do that classic, remember the old school prayer meetings where it just felt like, oh no, it's going in order. And then it comes to you. Then they're waiting. And then, they go, and then they give up and they skip you and they go to the next one. It's awful. That doesn't happen. You're going to be surrounded by people. Sometimes we just stay silent and go, and we just have internal prayer. But I tell you, for a pastor, there's no better meeting to lead than a prayer meeting. There's something powerfully significant about being in that corporate prayer meeting. It's powerful. Come. If, even if you feel like you've drifted, Come, surround yourself. Listen to the voice of Jesus. 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings, we have a prayer meeting, the art studio. We may be moving it. Just, just keep an eye on that. But come, pray. That is our only hope of stopping the drift. I, um, I wasn't going to share this, but I had, I had a word in, in the prayer meeting previous and... Uh, because I just, I just said to the guys who were there, you know, let's, let's just listen to see what we think Jesus is saying to us. And, and the words I got from God, I've never received anything like this before, and I believe. And I'm going to pray about it and check that, I'm, you know, that it's right. I just felt like Jesus said, and so it begins. South, and so it begins. Can it, can it? change our neighborhood absolutely and so it begins and so it begins with us on our knees and so it begins with us confessing it does not begin with program and activity it begins with his church becoming a house of prayer because i'm tired of duct taping and maybe maybe you want to join me in that let's pray Lord, I I sincerely hope that I feel like I've painted a bit of an oil painting this morning. And Lord, even though it's been here and there, the words that are a little bit scattered perhaps, God, I pray that 
that your word will have been heard. God, we are desperate. Our city is desperate. Our country is desperate. Lord, for a move of God. We've read about it in history and we're saying, why not now, Lord? But God, I I sense that there's a waking up happening. That individuals in this church and in other churches are are waking up and realizing that it, it begins with prayer. And it continues with prayer. And it finishes with prayer. That prayer is not just our ministry, but it is our calling. It's not just a program, it's our calling. Lord, I pray that these good people, many of whom have been in this church for a long time, that God, you would revive the hearts of your church. That God, if there are people in the room that have drifted, that they're in a place where they never imagined they would be able to get. But God, they would hear your word. Where are you? They would hear your whisper, Lord, your, your loving, gentle, mercy-filled whisper. Come, come. All of you are burdened and heavy laden. Come and I will give you rest. Taste and see. That the Lord is good. God, I, I, I pray that, that that word is of you. And so it begins. That God, let it be that this church becomes a house of prayer. Lord, let it be that our prayer meetings would be bigger than our Sunday meetings. God, there would be prayer meetings happening in in homes and in coffee shops and in community groups and corporately and individually that, Lord, that we would hear this call. Enlighten our hearts, Lord. Praise your name, Jesus. We're going to worship And then at the end of the service, some of the South leaders and myself will be available at the front for a few minutes to, or however long we need. And I want to encourage you that if there's anything that I've said this morning that has kind of thought, man, I'd love for somebody to pray with me about that, then come forward and get prayer. That if you've drifted and you're that prodigal, You know the beautiful thing about the prodigal son is it says in Luke that he came to his senses. There's some discussion about what that actually means. But I've always thought, well, what what was it that made him come to his senses? It's that, where are you? And maybe that's where you're at. You're like, man, this is just, I can't do this anymore. And you, you just start the journey back. Can I tell you, I promise you, as you come over the brow of that hill, metaphorically speaking, you've got a God, the Father, who is waiting to rush and hold you and whisper, it's going to be okay. 
Because in that culture, for the father to lift up his long robes and to run was incredibly shameful. It was culturally just horrific to do that. He didn't care because this is his boy. And it says in Hebrews that for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the shame of the cross. That's him running. He endured the shame because he loves us. So come and get some prayer. There's no shame in that. And we'd love to pray for you. And then please come out tomorrow night, 7 o'clock, to our Willow on Prayer. And we'll have it in the coffee bar area right there. And and it will be wonderful. So let's worship and, and then we'll pray after. Thanks, Josh.